Welcome to Facilitating the Mission, the podcast of Shepherd Staff Mission Facilitators. My name is Brian Mondock. And I am Jeff Jackson. So Jeff, we've been working through just the history of a Shepherd Staff and the circumstances and the different experiences that, well, really you've gone through that have kind of shaped not just how Shepherd Staff serves, but why they serve, who they serve. And we've, we've got two previous podcasts about this. So let's kind of pick it up uh, where you've left it off. You've kind of teased out a little that there was a major life shift for you. And I can, I can actually remember when that happened, you know, more than a decade ago, about 15 years ago, probably. But why don't you um, summarize a little bit and then dive into what, what happened? At the time when when the Lord moved me to start Shepherd Staff and and then make that transition out of my church because it was getting some traction and I was you know really convicted that mm, the church that I was pastoring needed a full time pastor that you know gave that church his full attention and yet here was this ministry that needed full time direction too because it was starting to get traction so you know, through a number of circumstances that I think I talked about in those podcasts, I sought counsel from some really um, mature men of God. And the upshot of it is that they told me to, their recommendation was, uh, their counsel was, hey, you know, you have to view this through a stewardship lens. And if you view it through a stewardship lens, you know, you've got an inventory of experience as a missionary, as a pastor, you've got the ability, a lot of people know who you are in these different platforms to to be able to talk about what God's doing globally. And as honorable as it is to be the pastor of a local church, you know, would you be a good steward if you have these other platforms and this inventory base that can actually move many other churches forward? Um, That's quite a challenge. It is, it is quite a challenge. And so the upshot of it was for the first time in my life since I be, became a pastor, I, I played through the whole scenario of I'm not going to be pastoring a local church anymore. And so in, two, in, in 2003, convinced that it really was God's will for me to be a good steward and sort of minister on, on a larger scale for his global purposes, I transitioned my church over um, to an old friend that used to pastor up in the Manila area. And then I concentrated full time on, on you know, leading shepherd staff. So when you say Manila, when the Manila area, do you mean Manila, Philippines? Yeah, Manila, Philippines. So a, 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 another brother who was uh, actually a missionary up in Manila while I was down in Cebu, he had returned from returned from the field also and was working and, and sort of bivocational pastor of a church back in North Carolina. And because of his experience in the Philippines and knowing Filipinos and and those kind of things and, and being originally from Southern California, long story short, I transitioned my church over to him. And then was able to dedicate myself full time to Shepherd Staff in um, in two th- early two thousand three. So you know I transitioned out and we moved the uh, office of Shepherd Staff into Escondido. And so you know I was I was now full time able to go and speak at churches and meet with missionaries and do the things that God had given me the inventory to do. And then what happened was I you know at the time I was I used to be fairly healthy. And fairly athletic, you know, I ran uh, 10Ks and stuff. I actually ran a half marathon one time. And at the time, my wife and I were had gotten into mountain bike riding and, you know, just trying to stay fit and so forth. And I started, you know, having some weird things going on in my body. 
And so uh, my muscles were kind of acting weird. I was getting cramps in a lot of different places. I was getting twitching and then losing strength. And so I took a trip to Nepal in, in November of 2003. So I was gone for a couple of weeks and I came back and tried to pick up mountain bike riding. And it was just, man, I could, I, I was just dying. It was like, I can't believe I'm that far off after just being gone for two weeks. And I did a lot of walking over there. So long story short, in January of 2004, we were running our missions training school that you went to. It wasn't that specific one that you went yep. to, but in January of 2004, I was down in Tijuana. I had taken a, a good friend of mine uh, who's a medical doctor with me. And as we were on our way back across the border into San Diego from him teaching that day in Tijuana, um, we were sitting in that border traffic and I was kind of telling him what was going on. And he was he started noticing some funky twitching in my face and so forth and started, you know, asking me some questions. And long story short, I wound up going through a bunch of testing. And this is like a pivotal moment in the life, in my life, in the life of the ministry. Come May of 2004, I was diagnosed by two different neurologists with ALS, which if anybody, you know, is listening to this and you know that's a terminal diagnosis. It's amyotropic lateral sclerosis, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It's very rare, and it's usually 100% fatal within five years. And so I was given this diagnosis both from a VA doctor and also from um, a civilian neurologist that I had been able to start seeing, and that changed everything. So for, for Shepherd staff, what that meant was, you know, look, I'm on the countdown. To me, the big baseball fan, I, I saw this as like the ultimate curveball. And all of a sudden at 45 and about a, you know, a year and a half into directing Shepherd staff full time and seeing this vision that God's given me become a reality and start to make an, a difference and an impact for his kingdom, I was told, hey, you're going to die. You need to get everything in order and you're, it's going to be a horrible death. And there's nothing we can do for you, so get your affairs in order. So at 45, with our first grandkid, two years old, that's what we were up against, my wife and I. And so uh, through a number of circumstances, I, I knew that I needed to transition out of shepherd staff and, and, and place the ministry in the hands of somebody that could, could really take it where it was, especially on the administrative front, all of, all of the things, the services that we provide administratively, it needed to be somebody that could take that and, and fine tune it and, and make it because that was sort of the, the engine that makes Shepherd Staff go is administrative excellence. All the other things we do are sort of in addition to that, but if we don't get that right, then we don't get anything right. So I actually told somebody not long after I started Shepherd Staff, we want to be more than an administrative agency, but we can never be less than that. And so one of the elders in my church, you know, has an engineering degree and um, a Naval Academy graduate and just, you know, a really, really squared away guy with incredible gifts in, in analytical management and administration and so forth. So what ended up happening is we ended up moving the ministry because of the cost of living in Southern California and for a number of other factors, this one of my elders, who was you know, Ron Clip. So basically, Ron gave an incredible sacrifice and, you know, basically resigned from a, an executive position with a ship manufacturing company here in the San Diego area 
took a massive cut in pay and, and then was willing to move with the ministry to Albuquerque. And there were a number of reasons for Albuquerque, not the least of which was the cost of living, what the ministry was able to afford as compensation and so forth. And so eventually in, in 2005, we moved the offices to Albuquerque. And then my wife and I moved to Mesquite, Nevada to be near my brother and, and my son, who had just come back from the mission field in Central America, as we thought my diagnosis was going to progress. And, you know, I would follow the normal course of of the disease ALS, where I would lose the ability eventually, uh, you know, I, all my muscles would atrophy and eventually lose the ability to swallow, lose the ability to breathe and and the other things that, you know, happen that contribute to the death of an ALS patient. And so, uh, yeah, so there, that was a major shift. Obviously, it was the ultimate curveball in my personal life. But what that did was then it forced, it forced me to, to find somebody who was certainly better than I am at that side of the ministry to be able to step in and really make that side of the ministry all that it, all that it should be. It's more than five years later. So what happened? Yeah. So what happened was we made the move up there. I, I got involved with the ALS Association. I had been involved with the ALS Association in San Diego. They had asked me to be a chaplain after I was first diagnosed. And so when I got to Mesquite, Nevada, I connected with the ALS in Vegas. And the ALS of Nevada in Las Vegas, they asked me to be a chaplain too. And I did some speaking for fundraising and stuff for the ALS Association. And they wanted to start a clinic for ALS patients. And for those that aren't familiar, ALS, the disease needs a bunch of different medical specialties. So you need, of course, a neurologist, you need a speech pathologist, uh, you need um, a respiratory therapy person, and, and a couple of other specialties. And so where there is an ALS association in a city and there is a sufficient amount of ALS patients, then what will happen is that ALS association will try to set up a local clinic so that an ALS patient can go to one location to see all of the specialists that they need to see instead of having to have different appointments in different parts of the city and have to get in and out of cars and go around to visit all of the different specialists that they need to see. So they were going to start this in Vegas. And so they came to me and they said, Jeff, we've got a, a really top drawer neurologist here in Vegas that's willing to help us get this off the ground. And we'd like you to go see him. And maybe be the first ALS patient to go through the clinic so you can tell others about how beneficial it is. And so I did. I went and met with this young guy. Really, I mean, he looked like, yeah, he was he was a young guy. He didn't look old enough to be a neurologist or a top neurologist for sure. And he starts asking me my story and I start telling him. And then he starts looking me over and doing the muscle strength test and everything on me. And, and he says, hey, uh, you know, he says, it's it's clear that you have a neuromuscular disease, but I'm not so sure it's ALS. How far along after the previous diagnosis were you into? Two and a half years. So this is two, two and a half years in. Yeah, okay. two and a half years into thinking that that I have ALS. And now, well, it's clearly it's not progressing as fast as it does. When's it going to pick up speed? So you sort of live under that tension. That's scary. You know, your whole view of everything changes when you've got a terminal diagnosis and you're basically on the clock and and there's some ability to determine how far your horizon is. And ALS certainly does that. It, it gives you the ability to know the clock is ticking. 
And so he checked me out and he said, you know what? He goes, I, I think that you may have been misdiagnosed. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I need to run some more tests and I need to do that evil, <laughs> what's called electromyelogram, an EMG test to you. I want to do a very thorough one of those on you. And and for those of the, the of people that don't know what the EMG is, it's this gnarly test where... Um, it's called electromyelogram, where they stick needles into your muscles. They're like two-inch, very thin needles that are connected electronically, and then they they jam them through your skin into your muscles, and then they want you to flex. Once it's in there with your muscle, as limp as you can make it, then they want you to flex so they can read the electricity running through the muscles. I had already had this done twice, and he's like, I've got to give you a thorough one. So he goes, but I think you may have this other disease known as Kennedy's disease, which I had never heard of. It's called spinal bulbar muscular atrophy. So it is a neurological disease that's like ALS, but it it only involves the lower motor neurons rather than your upper motor neurons. And it normally doesn't contribute to death. It doesn't cause death, but it will debilitate you in, a, in over a certain period of time. But it looks like ALS. It, it has the same symptoms as ALS. And of course, now, years later, you know, I've uh, literally half the, half the men that have Kennedy's disease were misdiagnosed as ALS, like I was. Wow. So there was a bunch of us running around with that same experience that I had. So long story short, I went in a couple of weeks later and he did this like literally hour and a half EMG on me from the muscles in my toes all the way up every muscle group, including... The first time I had it done, they did my tongue through the bottom of my mouth. Oh, my gosh. They, they jam a needle through the bottom of your mouth into your tongue, and then they measure the in your tongue muscle. And so this guy did this guy did my tongue directly into my tongue, a needle. I wonder how they come up with these, <laughs> these tests. <laughs> I don't know, man, but it's, uh, it's a little bit of a... Do you think they have like a meeting and there's like... The doctor's like, I, there's this guy that I really want to try. So I really don't like him very much. Let's try his tongue. <laughs> yeah. And and believe it or not, it's it's really most of it's not that painful. I mean, it hurts, but it's not like it's not. I mean, I've had pain, worse pain, but you know, the one in the tongue, the one in the thumb muscle, those two are the worst, oh. where they jab the needle into the the muscle at the base of your thumb, and then you have to like touch your thumb to your third finger. Or fourth finger. It's like, oh ah, and you can feel this needle in there. It's like, ah, anyway. <laughs> so I, uh, he runs a test on me and he's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, you got, you got issues there. It is neuromuscular. He goes, so mm -hmm. I really do though, because of the progression and what I'm seeing in you, I think it's, uh, I think it's Kennedy's disease. And he goes, because this is a inherited disease, which again, that was news to me. He goes, it's what's called an X chromosome disease which means that only men oh. get it and only it's men. passed on. It was passed on to you by your mother uh, from your grandfather. So men, men Thanks, carry Mom. the gene, they pass it on to their daughters and then their daughters pass it on to their male children. And I think baldness works that way. I think it is some, somewhat similar to that. I'm, I don't know about that, but, but he said, you know, he said, Hey, there's a, uh, there's a DNA level test. Right now, it's kind of being done through the Mayo Clinic that if you have this disease and we we have this test done on you, they'll, they'll, it'll be a 100% diagnosis if that's what you have. 
And so it was another one of those miracles where it's a very expensive test. And I wasn't sure the VA was going to pay for it, but I was already in the ALS subgroup within the VA. And so they, they went ahead and approved it. And so I had the test done. The cool. test came back positive that I have Kennedy's disease. I don't have ALS. So what was that feeling like? Yeah, you know, that was, it was amazing. It was. Is that like when the governor calls and it's like a stay of, <laughs> stay of execution? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to describe because it's, it's a whole, you know, you're into a whole new win window of, of perspective, you know? Uh -huh. And again, you know, normally, and it, everything's comparative, everything's sort of personal and subjective when it comes to suffering and pain. I've sure. learned that over the years. But yeah, I mean, under under normal circumstances, the diagnosis of Kennedy's disease would be devastating. Being told that you've got a neuromuscular disease that you've inherited, that it's going to take away your ability to speak and swallow probably, and probably your ability to walk after 15 to 20 years, being given that diagnosis would be a disaster unless you had previously been diagnosed with ALS. <laughs> And now all of a sudden it's like, hey, that is significant. And and it's it's funny because I like to use this, you know, uh, Steve Saint, who is the son-in-law or is the son of Nate Saint, one of the five guys that were killed in 1956 with Jim Elliott. He was the pilot. His son spoke at a conference in 2005, and I heard him talking about the definition of suffering. He said, as I've thought about it, the definition of suffering is expectations divided by reality. And then he said, then I thought about that for a few minutes and I thought, well, wait a minute, that's the same definition as blessing, expectations divided by reality. When I first time I heard that, I locked onto it and I said, that is a dead on perspective that brings in the whole gamut of what it, what suffering is and has a, it feeds into the purpose that God has for suffering and so forth. But I'm like the living example of that. When you've been told, you know, when you're being tested, they don't tell you you're being tested for ALS because it's the one diagnosis no doctor wants to give because it's 100% terminal with no cure. So when that happens, you know, you're, you have an expectation. Now this is suffering. You've been giving the re given the reality you got a terminal disease. So that's suffering. But when you're now navigating in that terminal disease diagnosis and you find out, well, that's the wrong diagnosis, it's this other neuromuscular disease, that's a blessing. What's the difference? Well, expectations divided by reality. Do you make it a practice to make a list of things that you're thankful for? I, I have seasons where I've done that. Whether, whether you write it down or you just pause and just like, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank right. you for this. Thank you for I that. I do that, yeah. Does, does, is it moments, is it moments like these that, I mean, do you do that now more now than you did before? Yeah. Life trajectory changing moments. Yeah, I do. And I, and I do it now and I do it more regularly because I'm writing my autobiography. And so I'm, I'm writing my life story and, and this, this whole episode of being diagnosed with it. And, you know, because again, if God is sovereign, then he permitted me to be given a terminal diagnosis and to live under its effects for two and a half years. And then said, oh, by the way, there were lessons that you could only learn by that that are going to be helpful for the rest of your life. And there's other things in your life that I wanted to do. So because of that ALS diagnosis, it catapulted Shepherd staff forward 
We moved it out. It, it became more manageable. You got somebody in the driver's seat that in that administrative realm, especially was leaps and bounds ahead of my capacity in that realm. And so, and then it brought in you, it brought in Pat Kenny, it brought in uh, Mike Ramsey. We needed to go to a, a more of a shared representation, pastoral, regional pastoral reps, you know, that you, that you served in. Right. And so, and then when the re-diagnosis comes because of the original diagnosis, we move and we land in Nevada. And then when I'm re-diagnosed, the door opens for me to move to Phoenix and begin working with refugees and add more inventory. You know, I remember you going to Phoenix yes. and visited you several times there, but I, I didn't totally, I don't know. I would, I'm always wrapped up in my own thing, but I didn't totally remember that I don't think that you ever really walked me through this reprieve. I mean, you have given me bits and pieces of it and it's really cool to, you know, I'm able to, you know, look in the rear view mirror and see, okay, I see, I remember when that happened. And I remember when that happened. I remember when that happened. And I totally remember, you know, that winter because I had to go to Tijuana and, and stand in at the, the missions training school. And I don't even think, I don't think Ron was even on board yeah. at that point. It was just like, Here's the things that right. we got to start taking care of right now, and so that was uh, yeah, that was that was pretty it was. heavy. It was a heavy was season, heavy. but a season where you just where we Helen and I in the midst of the tragedy just knew we were in God's hands, and we knew God was good, even though everything, you know, all of your worst nightmares are look like they're going to play out in your life. But then you fast forward and then, you know, so I, I end up going to Phoenix. The ministry really gets traction and grows under Ron's leadership with you and other people's helps. And then eventually in 2012, um, I moved into Phoenix in 08, uh, began pastoring a small Southern Baptist church here that was fully immersed in ministry to resettle refugees locally. So I, you know, I did that for four and a half years. And then because of my parents' health, I moved back here to Southern California and Shepherd staff and Ron and the board were uh, thought, you know, hey, why don't you sort of pick up with the areas that you're really gifted in and sort of continue to flesh out the vision of Shepherd staff? And so that's what I've been doing since uh, 2012 when we made the move back to California. And it's such a good fit. It is such a good fit. The gifts of the beauty of the body of Christ is just an incredible thing. I'm in awe constantly of just the different gifts that God gives to people and how when their hearts are focused on him and they, they, they work in the areas that they're gifted in and let brothers that aren't uh, gifted or, you know, let brothers that aren't gifted the same way other use their gifts. It just, it's a beautiful thing. I think it brings God glory. You know, I think it's one of the things that one of the observations that I've made over the years, it's like, it seems like the success of organizations isn't always around its mission and, vision, not that those things aren't needed, but it's always around the unique giftedness and the, and you use the word inventory often of the people involved. And it just, the organization becomes so incredibly unique. You can't cookie cutter it with, when it's built up of people with the stories that, you know, you're describing, you know, and the fact, and, and just, the level of empathy and a maturity that it brings to a guy like you, Jeff, forgive me for like, you know, 
I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but I'm just, I just so appreciate the depth that, you know, the thinker that you've become and the empathy that you have and the love that you have for missionaries, knowing, you know, in the depth of the pain that you've gone through, you know, you know, both on the mission field and just as like, you know, a man of God, just trying to work out your faith, never chasing that dollar, always chasing you know, bringing value to humans, trying to just obey Jesus and spread the gospel. I'm, I, I'm in, in awe of that, you know, and, you know, I have no reason to just gush on you. Feeling is mutual. Well, you know, I just, I, I so appreciate, you know, how God has woven your narrative into this organization that, and has made it so incredibly unique. And it's brought some amazing the staff that runs shepherd staff office. I mean, the depth of character and the true Christian love that's on display every single day in their lives. You know, those are the kinds of people that have been drawn to your vision. And, and I, I mean, it's, it's super genuine. So anyway. Yeah. So that's sort of a a piece of the story that I think, you know, the people that listen to this might want to hear about. So when you, you know, I, I think it's shepherd staff, you know, and what, I, what I've what i learned is like ministries rise and fall on God imparting a vision to one person who's willing to be obedient. But mm-hmm. if it's really the Lord, it becomes a living thing. And and at some point, it's, it's, uh, it's an organism that needs all of the more gifts and variety of God's goodness in other people to, to keep it going. And I think that's where we're at. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. To learn more about becoming a missionary with Shepherd Staff, go to ssmfi.org slash join. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter by searching at Shep Staff on either platform. 